the not so recent case anymore, but in Riley, Chief Justice Roberts wrote the case about cell phones, a search of cell phones. And it was the issue was in previously the courts had said when you do a search incident to arrest, you can seize and look through things on the person or in the car that are within the person's reach. So then in that case, it was a cell phone. And so under the scenario where like, you can look in somebody's wallet, if you arrest them, you can look in their wallet, can you search the digital data in the cell phone? And the court said, well, you know, although this, this is well-established law, a cell phone's so different from the circumstances that were led to that law. And a cell phone is really like a mini computer. And so you have to look at the privacy interests. And once we get into this cell phone area, privacy differences are so great that we have to change that doctrine for that particular type of search. Good afternoon and welcome to Everyday Law. I am your host, Bob Clark. Today, we have the privilege of having Judge Catherine Grafe of the Court of Appeals of Maryland to the program. Welcome to the show. Welcome. I'm happy to be here. It's now the um, Appellate Court of Maryland. My faux father. <laughs> I've had a kind of little run where we seem to go through cycles on this show where sometimes we have criminal defense lawyers, sometimes we have kind of politicians, and, and lately we've been on an appellate judge spree. And so we had to make the distinctions with Michelle Houghton that she's now Justice Houghton. And I was calling Judge Friedman, Justice Friedman. He right. said, no, 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 not yet anyway. So uh, we're we're all getting used to the new name changes. So um, you're you're in good company. Do you get new business cards or new anything like that? We do not. I'm going to put in the budget this year. I'll talk to the <laughs> governor about it and see if Wes can help us out. <laughs> so how has the name change made things different, if at all? It really hasn't made anything different as far as our day-to-day work, but I think it is helpful, the name change, because when we were created, the court, the appellate court was created in 1967, we were named the Court of Special Appeals because we only did limited cases. We only did criminal cases. We were The legislature decided to have an intermediate appellate court to relieve the highest court from their all the cases they were hearing. So initially, we just did criminal appeals. But then it slowly expanded, and at this point, we do almost everything. So saying we are a court of special appeals was really a misnomer. It does puzzle people in other states. Yes. Yeah, I think it's it's not that big of a difference for us, but it is helpful for other states who often were puzzled by what the court of special appeals did. So we corresponded just a little bit in advance of this, and it sounded as though you were a person who knew that they wanted to be a lawyer or a judge relatively early in life. Is that accurate? Yes. And what inspired this? So some people have, you know, stories about this specific event or watching Perry Mason or, you know, a specific event caused them to want to be a lawyer. I don't have a fun story like that, but more just that I really wanted to help people all my life in a profession. And the legal profession seemed like a good profession to be able to do that, an interesting profession that would be able to help people. I had a legal class in high school and a constitutional law class in college, and those just reinforced that I thought being a lawyer would be a really interesting and rewarding career. One of the recurrent things that has been said on this program, and we've now done 100 episodes of it, is how it would really be beneficial for, and it's kind of the beginnings of this show, for people in high school to actually learn about legal things. You know, you may get out of high school and get your first apartment when you go to college or don't go to college, but you're signing a legal document in a lease. 
And it seems like the school systems, at least present day school systems, are remiss in failing to address fundamental issues of law at a time when it would be useful. It is really helpful, I think, to young people to learn about the legal system. And that's one of the reasons I agreed to be on this show is because I think it's helpful for judges to talk to the community to explain the legal system so that people understand it and there's more transparency. So you took that course at Robert E. Perry High School in Rockville, Maryland, now non-existent. I did, yes, yes. I wonder if the Montgomery County Schools are still offering sort of a legal course akin to that in the modern age. Do you have any sense of that? I don't know. I know that I have participated. The judiciary is trying to help students learn about the law, and I've participated in several civics in the law programs for students, but it's voluntary. They come in on a Saturday, and we do exercises to explain to them, and they've been very excited about it and very enthusiastic, and I know some of my other colleagues are going to schools, and so it is important for young people to understand the legal system. And there are trial competitions and moot courty sorts of yes. things that are going on across the state as well. Yes. I used to be conscripted annually by Sherry Krauser to do these things. And uh, I did enjoy them, but I spent a lot of evenings in high schools yes. all over Prince George's County watching people argue, some not so expertly. Yes, it's rewarding to help the young people and see it energizes me to see how excited the young people are and enthusiastic they are. But it is above and beyond your regular job. So it, it does take extra time to do that. So I kind of wandered through your career resume, and you have an interesting one, having worked for one of the sort of preeminent Baltimore firm, Smith, Somerville, and Case, and then having an extensive career in the office of the attorney general. And you served, I presume, under several different attorneys general during that time? Primarily Joe Curran, but for a couple of years, Doug Gantler. You know, I was a great fan of Joe Curran and, uh, you know, I I worked with him, but I I always regarded him as a, a greatly admirable figure. I would presume that an awful lot of your legal background is involved in criminal matters and that that probably is quite helpful in dealing with such cases when they reach you on appeal. So I did four years in private practice, uh, as you mentioned, and did products liability and other civil law, which was very interesting. But I really always wanted to do public interest law. So I went to the attorney general's office and criminal appeals was not my first choice. I really wanted to get into another department, but people said it's hard to get into that office, go wherever you can. And so there was an opening there and I interviewed and I got the job and I loved it. And Spent 18 years there, and I've spent 14 years doing appellate work in the judiciary. So I always tell young people and everybody, but particularly young people, that, you know, take opportunities, embrace things, because you never know when there might be something, even if you think you know what you want to do, there might be something that you haven't thought of that really is a great fit for you. So embrace chances to practice in other areas and and new opportunities. One of the things that you bring to the table also is that you were a real lawyer arguing cases on appeal and otherwise in court. And I wonder how you feel that experience informed what you do now. Well, I can sympathize with lawyers who have tough cases that have to argue their client's position when it's a tough road to hoe. But, you know, I think it gives me perspective on the lawyer's end of things. I think somebody asked me, when I first got on the bench, what it was like changing from advocate to judge. And I said, 
first time after I got off argument, they asked me that. I said, well, you know, argument is much easier being a judge. I get to ask the questions. I don't have to answer any questions. So it's much easier from my perspective to be a judge than the litigant. But writing the opinion is much harder because as a litigant, I knew what the answer was supposed to be. I was, I was writing to persuade the judges to rule in my client's favor. But as a judge, I have to figure out what is the answer? What is the right answer? And so I think it's harder on the writing phase to be a judge, but a little bit easier on the argument when you don't have to answer questions. I have argued a number of appeals between the Maryland appellate courts and the Fourth Circuit, and I'm always impressed how dressed up my competence seems in the ones where I win and how eloquently... You know, the judges and their clerks write the opinions and how wonderfully they find the cases that I should have found to support my position <laughs> had I been a little bit more diligent. And it's one of the things that is really, in my view, a great service, because if you're going to make a decision and have some precedential value, there needs to be more than perhaps Bob Clark put into it, if you know what I mean. Well, I won't comment on that because I don't have any experience with that. But I, I agree, you know, these are important cases. They're important to litigants. They're important to future cases. So we spend as much time as we need to to get to the answer that we think is the right answer. Do you have a sense of what percentage of the cases that are decided are ones that have precedential value and which ones, you know, are just there in their own right? I don't have any statistics, but I guess you could kind of look at our unreported and our reported cases. So our unreported opinions generally are cases that apply just to the facts the case, they're resolved by resort to established law. And then the reported cases typically are ones that develop new law. I so wonder, if, somebody, if somebody took the analysis of reported versus unreported, you could get a person. That would be the way to, do, to divide yeah. Are there any particular kinds of cases that you look forward to more than others? I mean, whether it's the advocates or the issues or the nature of it? Well, every case I view as important. I know it's really, it's the, the most important case to litigants. And I put my all into every case that comes before me. A personal area of the law that I really enjoy is Fourth Amendment law. I did a lot of that in the Attorney General's office and I teach on that. And I enjoy when I get cases on that. It's just a fascinating area of the law. And Fourth Amendment is you know, the right to be protected from unreasonable searches and seizures. And it's such an evolving area of the law, especially with all the technology that is coming and how that impacts the analysis under the Fourth Amendment. I'm going to date myself a little bit, but when I started law school at the University of North Carolina, I had a professor, wonderful professor, Barry Nakel, who argued in the Supreme Court periodically and took us up to see uh, one of the early significant cases called Arkansas versus Sanders. And he, being a criminal defense lawyer, was fairly pessimistic about the future of the Fourth Amendment. And I was affected substantially by his viewpoint and have sort of decried its erosion across time. But it was a fascinating era. Things have changed. It does seem as though the composition of the Supreme Court and probably the circuit courts and the appellate courts in Maryland can have a dramatic impact on fairly similar fact patterns and whether people are protected against search and seizure. Well, I guess from the Supreme Court, I mean, we've certainly seen 5-4 decisions on a lot of cases. So in the close cases, and that's usually what goes up 
to the Supreme Court, United States Supreme Court, is the cases where there's circuit splits and there's not unanimous view on things. So it can, but it's really interesting to me just how the technology and just how the Fourth Amendment is having to adapt the not so recent case anymore, but in Riley, Chief Justice Roberts wrote the case about cell phones, a search of cell phones. And it was the issue was in previously the courts had said when you do a search incident to arrest, you can seize and look through things on the person or in the car that are within the person's reach. So then in that case, it was a cell phone. And so under the scenario where like you can look in somebody's wallet, if you arrest them, you can look in their wallet. Can you search the digital data in the cell phone? And the court said, well, you know, although this this is well-established law, a cell phone is so different from the circumstances that were led to that law. And a cell phone is really like a mini computer. And so you have to look at the privacy interests. And once we get into this cell phone area, privacy differences are so great that we have to change that doctrine for that particular type of search. So there's always new evolving situations, which I just think makes that area of the law so interesting. I concur. We had Judge Friedman on as our last guest, and we got talking a good deal about this topic as well. And it's a pretty confounding thing that you can come up with all sorts of individual scenarios that you don't think people should be able to get that information. You know, you get busted for DUI or something. Should they really be able to search your cell phone? You know, it doesn't seem germane. You're probably not taking video of yourself doing shots at the bar or something like that. But it also seems as though there's different categories of criminal conduct that are more likely to give rise to searches than other ones. And, And making those distinctions seems like a tricky business. It is, but that's what makes it so interesting because you have to look at the totality of the circumstances in any Fourth Amendment analysis. So all of these different fact scenarios can have the potential to change the analysis. And that's what makes, I think, that area of the law so interesting. So one of the byproducts of and maybe this is inaccurate, but my perception of it anyway, the rise of the Fourth Amendment back in the 60s and 70s was the existence of what they call the exclusionary rule, that if you improperly searched, then evidence that was found and wanted to be submitted in the criminal case was excluded, and that pretty much precluded a lot of prosecutions. And there have been discussions of kind of sanctions for improper searches that are not as onerous as excluding the evidence altogether. And I wondered if you saw anything going in that direction in Maryland. I can't say that I'm really thinking I can think of anything right now. I mean, there's there's exceptions to the exclusionary rule. There's sure. independent source rule. If the police got the same information by an independent source that was constitutional, it can still come in. Inevitable discovery. If they would have inevitably discovered the evidence that was improperly seized, it can come in. So there's, again, a whole body of law on that. And again, that makes everything really interesting. So one of the questions I've ended up asking a lot of the appellate judges I've spoken to is whether there have been instances where the oratory of the advocates on appeal, you know, their oral arguments have swayed you after having a view kind of different from that after reading the briefs. And I wondered if that's happened. So that's a debate that we have often that I've had with other judges. And I can say personally, yes, I have changed my mind after argument. So, you know, there's some cases that are pretty slam dunk and there's probably not that much you can do about it in oral argument, but on the close, the harder cases, absolutely. Argument is very important. And I have changed my mind after argument. 
that's something that makes me feel better because I don't know <laughs> if I'm as adept at brief writing as I am getting up and sort of passionately arguing about things. But uh, that makes does make me feel better. I pretty much it's interesting because some people essentially reach the conclusion. Sometimes we probe this question at greater length than others that they don't really remember a case where it changed their mind. But many oral arguments reinforce kind of points that they were a little up in the air on, and win the case as it were when the case is kind of hanging in equipoise otherwise. And it can do that too. But I will say for me, it has changed my mind. And I know as an advocate that it changed the judge's mind because just the way the argument went, the judge had clearly thought one thing. And then I said something else and the opinion said, well, if the argument was X, but it's Y. So I think, again, you know, in a closer, harder case, it can. But I think argument can be very helpful if attorneys use it wisely. So I wonder if you could describe the process of, of your job. Okay. So we get a new load of cases every month. They come in and my law clerks look at them. We, we do it as a team here. The whole team works on a case. My law clerks do a draft. I look at it. They come in with any questions while they're doing it. We work on several drafts before the argument. So I do go in having an idea of what I think might be the answer or the questions that I need to ask that I don't know the answer that haven't been sufficiently fleshed out in the brief. And I want to know the party's positions on that aspect. So we go into argument, listen to the argument. And then after the argument, the three judges, we sit in three judge panels, the judges all conference. And sometimes the other judges have different perspectives on things. And so then after that, we make a decision how we're going to decide. And then the authoring judge writes the opinion. Sometimes we don't all agree. And so somebody might write a concurring opinion or a dissenting opinion. Sometimes the person writing the opinion is solo and the other two judges view the case differently. And then that judge might write the dissent and another judge would then write the majority. So it's a fluid process. I mean, we do go in. I mean, advocates want us to go in knowing what the issues are and what our concerns are so that we can ask. And so we have read everything. We're ready. But there's no final decision until after the opinion is totally written. So is there any discussion between the judges before the arguments are made? Not typically, occasionally, but not, you know, just our workload is such that we're all working on our cases and sometimes we do, but not typically. It does seem like it would be an enormous workload that our audience may not be aware, but your court is an appeal as of right. You know, it isn't as though there's in the, now the Supreme Court, we learned from Michelle Houghton recently that there's this process petition for writ of certiorari asking the court to take cognizance of the case and that sort of thing. And that is not the case in your court, correct? Right. Anybody who wants, who's unhappy with the trial court's decision is permitted to appeal. And we have no discretion whether to hear the appeal. We hear the appeal, except for certain categories. Like if you plead guilty, then you can have to file an application for leave to appeal. But for most cases, they are entitled to a direct appeal and we hear it. So we do have a large caseload. I was just going to say that has to be a lot of unhappy Marylanders on one side, (laughs) happy Marylanders on the other. So are there occasions where you get appeals from both sides in the same case? Yeah, there can be cross appeals. There can be an appeal and a cross appeal. What do you make of that? Well, it's usually different issues. So we just decide, we decide the case as a whole then. So what if, you know, I'm I'm a disgruntled litigant and I, I take an appeal from the circuit court for Howard County. How long does the whole process take once I do that, typically? There's no, I mean, we do try to get cases out within nine months, but 
other than that, it depends. Sometimes cases come out really quickly. Sometimes cases take longer, and that's a factor of both how complicated the case is and how many other cases are in the queue. I mean, if it takes nine months, it's not because we're working on one case for nine months. It's because we have so many other cases that we're trying to get out. So there's a variety of factors. Sometimes we ask the lawyers for some supplemental briefing. So there's a lot of factors that go into how long it takes before a case comes out. I would imagine periodically there are cases pending before your court and a decision comes down either from the United States Supreme Court or from the Supreme Court of Maryland that has a dramatic impact on the case that's before you. Is that the case? I wouldn't say a lot of times because it's usually not that long before our opinions get out. And if we know there's a case pending, say in the Supreme Court, on an issue that will impact our appeal, a lot of times we'll hold it until that opinion comes down. We don't want to rule on it before we see what the Supreme Court has said on an issue. If a case does, and usually we know if there's something pending, so we would wait. But if something comes down unexpectedly, we might ask the parties to brief that and how that impacts the present case. I bring this up because I suffered a trauma years ago. I got a fairly large verdict in the circuit court for Prince George's County in a ladder case, somebody getting injured falling from a ladder. And, you know, we were looking good and the precedential law looked pretty good. And we went into court or I went into court to argue it. And I don't remember who the judge was now, who was the head of the panel, but said, Mr. Clark, I don't know if you know about X versus Y. The Court of Appeals just handed down a decision yesterday. Do you have a response to it? Of course, I hadn't seen it. It literally had been handed down the day before. And we had I I got an opportunity, I think, to read the opinion. And I what can I say? I got up and said something it can do. Oh, I think that you can clarify this, Your Honor. (laughs) That was the end of that large verdict, unfortunately. So perhaps that trauma affects my view of all of this process. So you, well, you talk- and your your example though also shows that we are typically aware of what's pending. And oh yeah, recent cases come down. So you know, I don't remember. Maybe it was Judge Harrell or somebody there. There are various Prince George's County judges that have come across the appellate courts who, because I've practiced there predominantly, I've gotten to know. And so typically one of them will call the other one or something and say, oh, yeah, what about that case? You know, and I'm not saying that it affects their decision, but merely making them aware of things, you know. So you, you were talking about your law clerks and something that doesn't get discussed a lot in this show is what are law clerks? Where do they come from? How do you choose them? What do they do? So the law clerks are, I have both law clerks and in the summers, I usually have interns. The law clerks are recent graduates that they apply and I do interviews and and select them based on the interviews and their qualifications. And interns are usually law school students. So they're in the middle of law school and they're trying to just get experience and kind of, like I said, learning about different areas of the law. Uh, They don't get paid, but they get to learn what the appellate court is like. They get to learn different areas of the law. So the law clerks are very, very beneficial to the judges. They, you know, help with the research and the writing and the proofing and the checking cases. And like I said, my chambers, we run as a team. Everybody gets some say into it. The draft goes to everybody in the office to look at, give comments on. So I would imagine that sometimes you have law clerks who are philosophically tuned differently than you are. And I mean, just, and I'm saying this because I've had law clerks and associates and all manner of different employees. And I've found it highly beneficial because I'm old now. You're not, but I'm old now. (laughs) And so it's one of those things where I like hearing from them about what they think about a particular thing. And I would imagine that helps inform your decisions as well. Absolutely. I encourage my law clerks to 
give me opposing views. And then we talk it through. Like, why do you think that? What cases support that? Bottom line, though, after we talk about it, my name's on the opinion. But so, you know, I make the ultimate decision, but I do encourage that discussion. It does help to hear the different views. And so it's nice to have that discussion with the law clerks. So you've been on the court for a while now, as you noted earlier, and I wondered if you've seen any change or evolution in the court across your time there. Probably the biggest change has been technology. I mean, the pandemic really just threw everybody upside down. And I would say our court, we missed one day of court and we went right to Zoom and then we went to Teams, Microsoft Teams, and we went back to Zoom And the appellate courts are better suited for virtual hearings, I think, because we don't have a confrontation rate of defendants uh, in criminal cases. But now that's opened up avenues for other proceedings by Zoom, doing this by Zoom, doing all sorts of meetings by Zoom. So I think technology has changed dramatically since when I started on the court. Do you think doing things by Zoom detracts at all from any aspect of, of oral argument? I think Zoom worked really well when we had to do Zoom. I prefer being in person, I think. And I've heard from advocates, the lawyers, that they prefer to be in person. It's easier to see kind of subtle mannerisms and reactions to comments. It's hard to pick that up on Zoom. So it was great. And when it's needed, it's great. But I prefer in person. And I've heard from a lot of lawyers that they prefer being in person as well. One odd sort of thing that I found doing appeals on Zoom and I kind of liked it as I had some cases for a while that were newsworthy for a variety of reasons. And so I can remember being in your court and the Baltimore Sun had its reporter there and was trying to interview me and interview my clients. And it was one of those things where for a host of reasons, other litigants in the case were leaking stuff like crazy. And that's one thing I have never done really is leak anything. I'm not saying that I wouldn't consider if it was ultimately advantageous and ethical, but it did mean that there was less, and I have had a couple like that, that, that there was less of that. You're in your Zoom sitting in your office or your bedroom or your living room or wherever it is, and you do have some privacy that might otherwise not be intact. I don't um, suppose people are trying to interview you at the court so much. No. <laughs> I'm <like> fortunate. <laughs> yeah. So we're moving towards the end of the show, and I just wondered what you thought lawyers and judges in Maryland could do to help the public more. Well, I think one thing that judges can do is just what I'm doing here is to be willing to talk about what happens to the legal system. Because as you note, students aren't getting as much civics lessons as they may have in the past. And there's a lot of articles about the judiciary and to explain how things work. I think, and and let people know how the judiciary works and how important we take our jobs and how seriously we take it, I think is helpful to people. And then, you know, if people have questions, you can answer their questions. Is there any kind of years ago after Judge, now deceased, Murphy retired from the court, he was the kind of the evidence guy or one of the evidence guys. And I used to go on tour with him talking to lawyers about evidence and that sort of thing. And of course, he knew infinitely more about it than I did. But, you know, that's (laughs) kind of a long. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I just wondered whether there's any sorts of things like that going on with the appellate judges presently that you're aware of. I mean, there's a lot of judicial education happening now. Right. Um, Right. So I, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot going on in all different areas. 
maybe when you retire, I'll put you together with my band with Justice Houghton and others, and we can go on tour and, and tout successful appellate advocacy and all manner of things like that. What do you think? <laughs> maybe. There's a lot of programs like that. I've participated in some of those, and there's a lot of programs for lawyers on appellate tips, appellate advocacy tips. So it is something that people enjoy hearing. Final thing I was going to touch on is you are part of the third appellate judicial circuit, which encompasses my home county, Howard County. And I don't know that the public really understands that there's sort of jurisdictional appellate judges. Could you just tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So we have 15 judges on our court right now. There's seven appellate districts. There's one judge from each of the appellate districts. The third appellate district is Howard, Carroll, Frederick, Washington, Allegheny, and Garrett counties. So some people refer to that as the Western Maryland seat, but it's really the third appellate district, which includes those six jurisdictions. Uh, the rest of the state is divided up into appellate districts. As I said, there's one from each appellate district. And then the other judges are what we call at-large judges. They can come from anywhere in the state. And I guess the thinking is we wanted to have somebody from each, the Eastern Shore may have some different thinking than Baltimore City does. And we want people from different parts of the state to represent for special appeals. So when I vote in Howard County, I see your name on the ballot. And hopefully you vote yes. <laughs> I did indeed this time. I did. Well, I'm sorry, but we've run out of time. And I'd just like to thank Judge Grafe for appearing on the program today. And I hope we could induce you to come back sometime in the future. Sure. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. This has been Everyday Law. Farewell. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio. 